So, big thank you to Joe uh, for last, last week. Joe's not even here. Thank you. Thank you, Joe, <laughs> wherever you are. I don't think that really... That might work, actually. That might actually work. You might be listening back later on on the internet, and we'll just be a little bit bemused. So thank you to Joe um, for his challenging words last week, and a bit of shame on our part that we threw that difficult passage his way, but I'm encouraged by the fact that he handled it so awesomely, and we'll feel very liberated to do it again the next time, <laughs> the next time a difficult passage comes back round. Um, so the point that Joe took us up to the church is still all in Jerusalem. It's, it's all still there. And we've had this great commission, this exciting part of the journey. This word's going to go out, and it's going to go to the ends of the earth. And there's this, there's this real call into the disciples. But the place that we find ourselves in, up until this, this part of the story, is still within the confines of Jerusalem. So it's a little bit like you've had this, there's, there's been the call, there's been this momentum that's happened, but you're just still... The church is still there, still sort of sat waiting in Jerusalem. It's a bit like that moment when you, 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 just, you, you, you feel the call of the exercise. Do you ever have that? Just in, in, your, in your restful nature and in your slump in front of your chair, you just get this urgency to do exercise. You get all the gear on. Do you know what I mean? You get all, you get all the lycra on. It's all there. It's all happening. And you might, even, you might even have an app that helps you aid your fitness regime. All that stuff's happening, and yet you can stay in the house, can't you? Do you do, does that happen to anybody else but me? I get all the gear on, and I kinda, I'll even do a bit of lunging in the house, and I'll feel like, I feel like I'm there, but actually I'm just I'm stayed there. This is kind of the, the, the state of the church at this moment. They've had this awesome call to go out into the whole world. They've, got, they've been equipped by the Holy Spirit, the resurrection. They're on fire with this thing. It's all happening like that, so they're all geared up. They're all ready to go. And yet they're just staying in Jerusalem. So part of the story that we're going to skip, we're not going to skip, we're going to hit it, but we're not going to give it the time it deserves, I think, because we want to try and get to the end of the book of Acts. Chapter 7, something's going to have to happen to get this church out of the house. Something's going to have to happen to get this church moving. The thing that happens is a, is a terrible thing. It's an awful thing. Maybe, you know, maybe you'll be familiar with this story, but I'll, I'll hit it with you again. So remember, the, ch- the church is stuck. It's in Jerusalem. And the, the guys are preaching, and this guy gets up to preach, Stephen the Apostle. And he's got the voice of an angel. He's full of God's spirit. You know, he's, he knows the law. He knows the Torah inside out and upside down. He's a godly guy. He's caring after widows. He's like, I don't know, he's the best guy just about the best guy. And he goes out and preaches the word and they pick up stones and they drag him to the edge of the city limits and they throw stones at him till he falls down dead. And as he falls down dead, he's looking up to heaven. It's a beautiful picture. It's a horrible picture. And what happens to the church at this moment? They're in Jerusalem to this point and then they flee. It's not a great... It's not a great example of us as Christians, what it's going to take to get us out there. It's a horror show of an example, but it gets everybody fleeing out there. The the word is recorded for us. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. rather, Rather than being put out, and we thought about this a couple of weeks ago, Rather than being doused 
That's what was supposed to happen in this moment. This, this guy stoned to death, and in a sense, the, Roman, the Romans and the, the religious leaders of the day are thinking, we've put out this Christian fire. Instead of that happening, this word bursts out. You remember I gave the illustration a few weeks ago, sort of delf, self-deprecating anecdote, one of my favorite kind of anecdotes, where I set fire to the, to the lawn. Do you remember that anecdote? Ridiculously. So if you weren't in, I uh, was trying to light a barbecue. Lit, it was just impatient. Lit the barbecue. Um, couldn't get it lit. Grabbed a bottle of Terps. The flame went up into the bottle of Terps. I threw it onto the garden. I tried to jump on it to put it out. Idiotic in the extreme. And the whole lawn set on fire. And I thought that jumping on it would put it out. And yet this flame burst out. I, just, I didn't understand the chemical makeup of fire. Didn't get it. Didn't get it at all. And in a sense... These people persecuting the church just did not get the chemical makeup of the church. It's not going to be put out. It's not going to be extinguished. And what happens when it's jumped on in this way is that it just spreads out and it bursts out. Challenges me this a little bit. And I kind of reflected as I thought about this. It's a pain in the neck often, I think, that God's gospel seems to spread better at times of severe persecution. Read, it's not, it's not always the case, but it's often the case in the Bible that God's word, in times of suffering, in times of persecution, that word spreads. And God, as I reflect, God, and you, you can reflect yourself, God has moved me often on sunny afternoons when everything's going really well. And I'll open up a psalm, and I'm moved, and he talks to me, and his spirit moves, and I'm challenged. But when I look back onto my own story, and I want you to look back onto your own stories just now. When I look back onto my own stories, the times when I've been really shifted out of my seat have been the times when I've gone through the mill, when it's been difficult. And I don't know, I don't know if that, if, which way around this thing's working. I don't know if that's, if that's, if that's my fault or if that's just how God works. Maybe in those times, I'm clinging on to him in a way that I'm not clinging on to him at other times. Maybe it's because I need him in these moments. Whatever it is, C.S. Lewis wrote a quote. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts at us in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. It's interesting, isn't it? Reflect back on your own life. In these times of oppression, I don't know, sometimes I hear God like he's, he's right there, whispering into my ear. And what happens in this moment as the church is oppressed is God's word spreads incredibly against all the odds. It's the opposite of what was supposed to happen, and God's word shoots out. Peter says to us, don't be surprised when trials come. These have come so that your faith, as great as gold, may be refined Don't be surprised when bad stuff happens. Don't be surprised that it's difficult. What did Jesus say? In this world, you will have trouble. You're going to have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. We're thinking about, I think. So the story spreads out. It bursts out of the seams. And we've got apostles flying here, there, and everywhere. I want, we're going to take a, 25,000, how high the planes fly, 25,000 feet, something like that. We're going to take a 25,000 feet look down at the story, and we're just going to pull out three characters. I don't know if you could put the image up, Amy, that base. 
three characters. Okay, I think it's really interesting. We read, if you keep reading through the story of Acts, thousands and thousands and thousands of people are saved. Thousands and thousands of people are saved over and over again. And if, I guess if Luke chose to write everybody's story of salvation, maybe it'd take him forever. Maybe nobody would read the book. But he picks out a couple of people. I want us to think about the characters that Luke bothers to tell us about in these couple of chapters. Why does he pick out these people? Thousands and thousands of people are saved. I think it's really interesting the way that you tell a story by the type of people that are in a cast. The type of characters. Often, actually, it's a story in and of itself, or it's a greater story than the story that's been told. The diversity of people can often tell a story. So we look at this. This is a, one of my favorite films, Little Miss Sunshine. It's a really good film, very funny. A little bit inappropriate in places, but very funny. Um, so you've, and and as, I, as you watch this film, I don't know if you've seen this film, if you watch this film, you're trying to work out all the way through, what's this film about? Everybody's got their own little story. Everybody's got their own little backstory. Richard, the dad, he's just like, he's lost in his own uber-competitive world. He's got this philosophy of life, and he just keeps having this bad luck story. And you think, is this story about him? The granddad's an absolute crackpot. He's just got an inappropriate mouth all the time. And in the end, something very tragic happens to him. And you think, is this story about him? Is it about Olive, this little girl who seems to just be at the heart of the story and you fall in love with? Is it about Uncle Frank, who kind of tragically and really darkly is talking about suicide the whole time? Is it about Dwayne, who's just this kind of deep-thinking, grumpy teenager? Or is it about Cheryl, the mum, who's trying to pull all these things together? And, and in the end, they go on, they go on a road trip. And as the road trip happens, they all get in this truck together, and you realize that these people are just about as diverse a bunch of people as you're ever going to meet in your life. And yet, the sort of climax of the story, the lovely end to the story, is, well, they just kind of end up having to love each other. And this love is really magnified and made really clear, and the strength of it and the broadness of it is made really clear because of the fact that these guys are so different. That's, that's a big part of the story. These guys shouldn't ever get along, yet they're family. And the fact that they love each other is just magnified beyond all belief. You just think, yes, this must be love, because these guys are nothing alike each other. Sometimes the characters in the story are the actual story. So we're going to look at three stories, three characters. And then at the end of these three characters, we're going to pull it back in together. So the first guy that we're going to look at this is the first guy that the Bible reached. Thousands of people are saved. Work your way, mental work your way through the book of Acts. Who's the first guy I'm going to talk about? He's a sorcerer. I don't know what kind of... A sorcerer. That's the first guy Luke reports to us. A sorcerer. What kind of imagery comes into your... I just... My mind is a bit like this. I have all sorts of pictures that come into my mind when I think of a sorcerer. It's not anyone who I expect to be walking around the streets of Samaria at these times. And yet the first person that Luke bothers to tell us about is a sorcerer. This is what's happening in the story. I'll build you up. We'll get, we'll get to the point. So the story is breaking out of Judaism. Old Testament, it's been a lot about God's people. A lot of information, a lot about their holiness, the mistakes and the good things and the bad things that happen. But essentially, the story funnels out through God's people. And what happens in the New Testament, the new wine that comes with Christ, is this story bursts out. And this, these couple of chapters, we see it sort of creeping. So I'm trying to pull out of Judaism. So the people that are in the story are on the fringes of Judaism. So the first guy, the guy that's out preaching, is Philip. So these stories, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, we'll get there in a minute, but Philip 
meets the sorcerer in this story. And Philip is a Hellenized Jew. So Joe talked a little bit about Hellenized. We think he's a Hellenized Jew. He's probably a Hellenized Jew. Joe talked a little bit about this last week in that this makes him a bit more Jew-ish. Emphasis on ish. He's a Jew, but he's got Greek influence. You know, he's got Greek language. He's got Greek thinking you know, in, incorporated into his, into his brain. So he's a bit less Jewish. And so the guy that's preaching is a bit less Jewish. And the people that he's preaching to, remember the Samaritans? Remember how all Jews hate Samaritans? Nothing good in, in Samaria. These guys sold out hundreds of years ago. This, the tension between the Jews and the Samaritans goes way back. You know, it's proper, I just hate you. It's like a byword for just, just going to be a bad person. Just hate the Samaritans. So this sort of tension is rumbling on. So it's breaking out of Judaism in the Old Testament, pulling away at it. You're getting somebody who's a Hellenized Jew preaching to Samaritans, Samaritans who Jews probably would say are not Jews at all. And the message comes, of all the people that it comes to, it comes to this magician, this sorcerer. And it identifies him in God's word. It describes him as this man... Is the, I couldn't believe this when I read it. This man is the divine power known as the great power. You've almost got to say that this, you know, in that kind of voice, haven't you? And you can imagine, this is what people said of him. This is the divine power known as the great power. I don't know what kind of tricks he did. I don't, you know, they've got some pretty cool tricks now. People like David Blaine and, and Darren Brown. The tricks are awesome. You watch them on the TV and you're just kind of captivated. I don't know what he was doing, if he was making cards disappear or what, but he had a massive following. I want us to grasp this. This guy was a celebrity. I think that's why Luke's talking about him. This guy was a famous guy. Loads of people followed him. And what happens to this guy, and it's kind of awesome and tragic, he accepts the word of God. At least that's how it reads. Looks like he says, yeah, I think this might be right. Then, kind of tragically, this celebrity sorcerer sees Peter and John coming around with the power of the Holy Spirit. People are healed and he, he looks across the side, and I guess he's got his little crowd here, and he's pulling the cards out, or whatever he's doing, pulling rabbits out of the hat. I don't know what his tricks were. And he looks across, and these people have been healed from being paralyzed and all this sort of stuff. And he looks across, and he's like, man, that's a, that's a pretty solid act over there. You know what I mean? And, he's, and I guess maybe he's looking out, and people of his crowd are sort of wandering over to the other, the other act and thinking, this is really good. So he goes over there, and he says, whatever this is, this Holy Spirit, can I buy it off you? Can I buy it off you? We can read it. We'll read it out, actually. You've not got it up on the text, I'm afraid, but I can read it to you. 8.18, you can read it later on if you want when you get back. When Simon saw the Spirit given at the laying on of hands of the apostles, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Let me have this trick. This is awesome. This is a really cool trick. I'll get loads of money if I do this. Peter answered, May your money die with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. I'll just pause over that thought for a second. Peter and instances in the early church so harsh on the abuse of money and dishonesty. There's, a, there's another story that we've skipped, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. So all the apostles, a couple of chapters back, all the apostles are selling all the stuff that they've got. They're selling all their possessions and land and they're coming together and they're laying it all at the apostles' feet and there's this couple come in called Ananias and Sapphira. They sell all they've got but they just keep a bit back for themselves and you think that's nothing, is it? I've done way worse than that, and they drop down dead. Peter here says, may your money die with you. And you read these stories, and you think, man, this, this book, the Bible, is a bit harsh. It's a bit harsh about stuff like this. I'm a bit uncomfortable about stuff like this. And then you look through church history and how corrupted it is. 
You have a look, watch a few films, read a few books. Some of the stuff we've done, some of the ways we've laundered and nicked money, shocking stuff. And then you read this story and you think, man, perhaps that story wasn't harsh enough. The, the foundations of God's church in the story of Acts is going to make the... God through his word and the apostles are going to make every effort to start off foundationally as a, as a people that is built on honesty. I think one of the things that we've got to learn from this message as church, maybe one of the things that we've got to get back to as God's church is that it is built on honesty and integrity at the hands of Jesus Christ. We'll go back there. Story goes on. Peter says, you have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are still full of bitterness and captive to sin. Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said will happen to me. When they had testified and proclaimed the word of the Lord, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. So you've got first guy, Simon the sorcerer. And if you're anything like me, you read about this story and you just left. This is the first guy we hear about. Words going out. First guy you hear about, you're scratching your head and you're thinking, why, why is this story down there? Why is this the, the first guy on the cast list? He's a sorcerer. And he's not even a good sorcerer. And we don't even really know if he's saved or not. And it sounds like he might be saved. And then he throws it all in because he wants more money. Why do we have him? Keep the question fixed in your head. Second guy, and I guess if you just put the text up at this point, it would be really helpful. So we're going to jump onto the Ethiopian eunuch. This is the second guy. First guy, sorcerer. Second guy, eunuch. There's some pretty severe diversity here. Some pretty different characters, if you know what a eunuch is, and we'll get there in a second. First of all, it's just worth pausing over and thinking about how this actually happens. The angel says, the angel says to him, and I love the vagueness of this. This is like my directions when somebody asks me. I'm hopeless with directions. My mind goes completely blank, and I just go, because I don't want to be like, I don't know. I just go, it's down there. Somewhere it's down there. Wherever you're looking for, it's down there. And this is what God says here. Go on the south road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So think about this guy, Philip. He's been preaching in Samaria. There's been thousands of people saved. This guy is an evangelist. This guy is a people person. This guy goes around and people come to faith in him. This guy is the guy that looked after widows. This guy is a good guy around people. And what does God say to him? Really kind of weirdly, you think? I'm going to give you the vaguest instruction in the world. I want you to head south towards Gaza. It's about 50 miles. It's about an eight-day walk. I want you to just go down that road. If that were me, I'd, be, I'd want him to be remonstrating with God. I think, I think I'd say something like, well, there's people getting saved here, and I'm a people person. You know, I'm an evangelist. Put me where the people are. God says, go south, just south. That's all I'm going to give you. I think it's amazing how often in the Bible that these characters that we observe, God just says, go. Go, I'll fill you in later on the details. Go. And, and, and part, of, part of our trial as human beings, I think, in our journey of faith is that we want to know specifics, don't we? We want to know time, place, outcomes, all the rest of it. And in this story, God says to Philip, go. Sometimes I think our obsession our distraction with the specifics of the story is a bit misplaced. God's eyes, I think, are often on how faithful we are. 
I want to talk about strategy, it's important. I want to talk about what we're going to do, where we're going to go, it's important. But often with these characters in the Bible, you see that it's about God saying, who's going to put the hand up? Who's just going to go? So these two guys are heading south. The Ethiopian eunuch in his chariot, in his little cart, and Philip. And incredibly, beautifully, prophetically, miraculously, and I don't know if Philip's running along at this point. I don't know if the chariot's going faster than Philip. I don't know which way around this thing works. But Philip comes across this chariot. And it's, it's really odd, I think, so that as the, as the text unveils it, in these days, if you could read, you just read out loud. I don't know if that's because if you could read, you were in the minority, you wanted to show off. I don't know if that's what it was. But in these days, you would read the text and you would read it out loud. So Philip comes along miraculously just at the time this guy is reading the servant songs in Isaiah just at the right time. It's incredible, I think. God just says, go south. Be faithful, go south. You've got a guy being faithful going south. You've got a guy wrestling with the word of God. And what is the outcome here? Africa gets its first ever missionary. Sometimes, I think, in our lives... And you could look back, maybe you've had a few. You get these things called divine appointments. You don't really know how it happens or why it happens. Or you just bump into somebody. They're really struggling with something. You've got something to say about something. And maybe you put it down to coincidence. I don't know. In this instance, I feel like God had it in mind. God had this moment in mind. God had the nation of Africa in mind. God had the ends of the earth in mind. I want us to think a bit more about this Ethiopian eunuch. We've got the sorcerer. We've got people at home in their armchairs reading through Luke's gospel, maybe been bored, flicking through. You get to a sorcerer, you're going to read on. You get to an Ethiopian eunuch, you read on. People were interested in the kingdom of Nubia in these times. This was an interesting thing. Luke writes this, and it's a bit like, it's got a bit of the hello headline about it. You know these, I'm going to say trashy magazines. Do you know what I mean? These trashy magazines where the headline is, this person fancies this person or this person's bought a house. Sometimes it's ridiculous. It's like sea monster comes up and kills man on board. Something as ridiculous as that. But you grab it and you go, oh, I'll read this. You know, it's, this, is, this is that kind of headline. Just read through it. An Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candake, which means the queens of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship. This is rhetoric. This is, I can't put this down. It might not sound that interesting to you, but you read this 2,000 years ago, this is like, who is this guy? An, an Ethiopian eunuch, a Nubian from a distant empire that we've heard about, a little bit about. They've got loads of money. He's come to worship. How does that work? How can he come to worship? There's a couple of things that we've got to think about. It's drawing us to this just distant, mysterious kingdom, this wealthy, powerful guy. And we've got to Talk about the elephant in the room. This guy's a eunuch. So it wasn't uncommon for guys that worked in with the queen's affairs, the king's harem, to be castrated. Not a word you're going to hear very often from the platform. But this is what's happened to this guy. Even dismembered, that happened. And this, I read about this thinking this would be a one-off event. This is quite a common thing in kingdoms around this time. This would happen horrifically. 
quite often. This guy is a very, as the sorcerer is, he's a very different guy. You aren't going to, you aren't going to, you're going to be reading through Luke's gospel, you aren't going to put this down. You might have been getting bored with his last story. You might be getting bored with my story now. But if you're reading this, you're like, man alive, what? A sorcerer? He gets to hear the word of God? And a Nubian? Who's pretty mixed up and pretty confused? And he's, and he's more than just a little bit mixed up. Because we know, don't we? He's reading this scripture out loud. And Philip comes alongside him. And he, he's not making sense of what it is. This is a pretty mixed up guy. Like, he's gone to worship. And it must have been odd for him. Because he's an Ethiopian eunuch. Lots of... Lots of money, lots of power, lots of high social standing in his own community. And yet he comes amongst the Jewish people and he wouldn't have even got in the temple because of who he was. They wouldn't have let him in. It's a pretty mixed up guy and he's, and he's trying to work his way through the word of God. And Philip draws alongside him and he is able to explain who Jesus is. And I think he asks a really crucial question at this point. So we've got the confused dodgy sorcerer. We've got the, the eunuch who to anybody reading it is a pretty confused background. He asks the question, he says, what stops me from being baptized? This mixed up, very different, very seemingly un-Jewish guy. What stops me from being baptized? Now, Philip, we know, he knows the law inside out. It's probably a bunch of stuff working through his head. Well, you know, a part of his Jewish background is like, he could think, probably list about 10 things right off the bat. Well, you're not this, you're not that. We don't know where you're going. We don't know how well you know the word of God. All this stuff. And actually, in this age of grace, the answer is to this eunuch, nothing. There's some water there. There's nothing to stop this guy getting baptized. This different guy, this diverse guy, this odd character from Nubia. And he goes in the water and he gets baptized. And the outcome, gets back on his chariot. The word of God reaches to the ends of the earth. The sorcerer, the mixed-up Ethiopian eunuch, and who's the last character? And I ain't going to spend very long on the last character because I've misjudged my time again. It's Paul the murderer. And, and you know about the Apostle Paul, so we perhaps, perhaps we're okay. We don't need to talk about this too much. And you think, you think oh, this is he's a weird guy. The sorcerer's weird. The eunuch, he's a pretty different guy. He's a pretty diverse character. And then you get to the, the point where it, just, it flips it all up on its head and you're totally confused and you read about this guy, Paul, who we've read about before, as Luke's talked about, this guy chasing around Christians, murdering them, standing watching Stephen get stoned to death. He's the next guy. Nine, chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any that belonged to the way the Christian faith, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, who you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what to do. And maybe, maybe you know some of this story. And in an odd kind of way, the guy that's going to be the story of the New Testament is probably more weird and worse than the two guys we've just met. And he's something like scales on his eyes. He goes to straight street. This guy comes and takes the scales away and he finds his savior in an incredible way. The sorcerer, the Ethiopian eunuch, and Paul. Samaritan sorcerer, a guy that is 
corrupted and uncertain about his faith. Paul, the mad murderer. What kind of story is this? Why on earth is Luke, of all the thousands of people that got saved, telling us this story? One of the things we find out from the book of Acts is that church at the point of origin is a church that is shaped towards everyone. Everyone. People that are going to blow your mind just to even think about. People that you're never going to expect to be stood next to when you're in the kingdom of heaven and you're looking at your saviour. Some guy you've got no idea about is going to be at your right-hand side and at your left-hand side. That's what it says in the book of Revelation. Church at its origin is shaped towards everyone. Popular and outcast, rich and poor, good and bad, trustworthy, unreliable, interested and ignorant, familiar and cultural opposites. What does it tell us about God? What does it tell us about God? I don't know if you've ever organized a party, just about the worst party organizer in the world. And you know that you get to that moment where you're thinking through who's going to come to the party and you've got, you've got a couple of ways you can play it and you kind of go, well, if, if we invite them, you know, they're veggies and then we'd have to cook this. Or if we invite them, they don't get on with them. And you, know, you get all this rigmarole, you get all this story. And God is like our friend who sits there and organizes, he's organizing this party. And he's saying, no, I want you to invite more people. And you're kind of going, what? But if we invite them, that's kind of our response. And then God says, no, I want you to invite more people. In fact, I want you to invite everybody. In fact, Jesus tells a story about this. He tells a parable about this. So he says, initially, I want you to go and get these people. Here's the invites. Go and get these people. And the word comes back. These people don't want to come. So the master of the house says, go and get more people. And they can't even get any more people. And eventually, the master of the house says, right, go into the streets and the highways and the byways and get everybody in. Drag anybody in that you can. Compel them to come in. The story of the early church is a story for everyone. Changes the kind of party that you're going to, doesn't it? When you change who's coming. You hang around with different people long enough, it changes you a little bit too. One of the lessons for us as church one of the dangers for us as church is that we get samey. Hang around with each other long enough, we just turn into each other. You know, people turn into their dogs, don't they? Have you seen examples of that? It happens, doesn't it? They just kind of become the same thing. Similar with church, we hang around, we get the vibe that this is it, this is where God's going, we are it. And actually the story of the church is out there. Changes who we are, changes the party, changes the vibe, changes what we do. Means our doors need to be as wide as they can means our embrace and our welcome needs to be as warm as it can. means our love needs to be stretched. means that it will be really difficult. You see this story going out in the book of Acts, and there's this battle between what is holy. Holiness goes out, and it runs into the world. And people keep coming back to the apostles saying, yeah, but these people do this. These people do this. What are we going to do? That is difficult, but that is the story of church. Speak to your mate at work. I think, I don't know how this guy's going to come into church or how she's going to come into church. This is the story of church. This is the battle of church. We have to be as open and as wide and as holy and as loving as we can be. Second thing I notice about this text that Luke employs this thing that we call rhetoric. Talks, gives us three instances and we might put the Bible down and fall asleep reading it, but people in the first century are reading this and they're just like, wow, what? An Ethiopian eunuch, he, he, he gets saved? Wow, a sorcerer, he got saved? He employs rhetoric. 
He really works hard at persuasion. He makes you not want to put this book down. He says, read about this. I want to do anything I can to engage you with the story of Jesus Christ. Kind of challenges me. Challenges us to think about, are we going to employ our creative efforts, the way that God has equipped us to persuade people to join the kingdom of heaven, to come under the story of the gospel? And finally, the killer, and I realized this late last night as I looked at these three characters. And in the back of my mind, if I'm honest, I thought, I think I'd write this story differently. I'd want the story of the church to go a bit differently. And as I read through these different characters, I stumbled upon the odd conclusion that they were all me. It was horrible for me to find out. I am the person that doesn't really deserve to hear this. I am the person who'd rather earn a few bob than fight for holiness. I am the person with the complicated life. I am the person that corrupts the church. I am the person that doesn't really get the Bible. I am the person with the shady past. And as I read and as I thought through these characters and their implications for me, I actually became really glad that these three misfits are in the Bible because these three misfits are me. They are my saving story and they are my story to tell.